Nahum chapter 1 in your Bibles. Finish off chapter 1 tonight. I've already started studying on chapter 2, and I'm pretty excited about it. I almost said Nahum chapter 2, but you only get a half-studied sermon. I don't want to do that. Nahum chapter 1 will be in verses 8 through 15 tonight. Nahum 1, 8 through 15. The Bible says, But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. And when, when he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Amen. What a great passage of Scripture. You're going to notice in this passage tonight that God kind of moves between talking to Israel and talking to Assyria back and forth, and I'll kind of point that out as we go through it. So we began two weeks ago with Nahum laying out the righteousness and greatness of God. This was his backdrop for the destruction of Nineveh. Um, God is not... I'm trying to think of the word I want to use... He's not destructive for no reason. God's not a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, I shouldn't ask you, should I? You have no idea what I'm thinking. Anyways, there's a word I'm looking for. A sadist. God's not a sadist. He's not out for destruction for the sake of destruction. The destruction of Nineveh is not God being unkind or unmerciful. It's God being just and righteous. That's why he sets the backdrop of the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrians with the holiness of God. God is holy and we got, we've got to get that in our minds. Today we have Christians who abandon entirely the doctrine of hell, don't they? Because they don't want God to seem unkind. Listen, hell is not a picture of God being unkind. It's a picture of God being holy. If hell didn't exist, God couldn't be holy. Because he has to judge sin. Can you imagine a judge who let everyone go free? I mean, just think of it. The car thief comes before them. Yeah, you've been pretty good. You stole one car, you're off the hook. The murderer comes before him. Well, you know what? You did kill somebody, but you know what? That's just one person. 
You did so many. You helped orphans. You've, you've fed thousands. In some cases, you killed one, but you, you took care of thousands. Go ahead and go free. We call that judge what? Unjust. Unrighteous. We call for their immediate impeachment, right? We want them off the bench. Can you imagine if God did that with sinners? That's why God does, he doesn't weigh our good against our bad. Well, when I stand before God, he'll uh, consider all the good I've done and then the bad I've done. He'll put them on scales. And when they, no, no judge ever does that. They judge you by the law that you've broken. If you violated the law, you're guilty, right? I don't have a lot of run-ins with the law. Try not to. I still go back to that one speeding ticket I had that I did not deserve. And before you say, oh yeah, right, sure you didn't. I drive a Prius, okay? If you're telling me in one block, never mind. I just told my, I should, I should email Toyota and tell them that's a sports car, okay? Anyways. But I'm before the judge. It wasn't like, how many miles have you driven versus how many tickets do you have? Right? It was, did you do it? I didn't, but I didn't tell him that. I did what my CHP friend told me, and I pled no contest. Because he didn't get you anyways. I pled guilty. You know what he didn't do? He didn't compare my driving record this year to last year. He judged me by the law. Here's the speed limit. It says you're going over the speed limit. I still debate that. But it doesn't matter. The law is the law. And he passes judgment based on the law. People be surprised they get to God one day. And they bring him this boatload of good works they've done. And he said, I'm not here to judge your good works. Have you broken the law? Yes, guilty. We've got to stop pretending like the doctrine of hell or the judgment of God is a bad thing. Okay? It's not. It's a picture of the... If we got a clear picture of the righteousness of God, hell would make a lot more sense to us, wouldn't it? The problem is not hell. The problem is our view of the holiness of God. We don't have a high view today of the holiness of God. That's why we worship the way we do. That's why churches are the way they are. That's why professing Christians are the way they have a low view of God. How many times do you hear it? At an abortion, I've heard thousands. She's probably heard it more than me. Well, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. We approach worship so casually in many churches today. We have a low view of the holiness of God. We need to recapture Isaiah's vision of God. High and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. And so Nahum begins his book announcing the destruction of Nineveh by setting Nineveh against the backdrop of who God is. God is good. He's righteous. He takes care of his own. He loves his own. This is the God you sinned against, and you deserve everything you're getting. And we also saw really the impotence of the gods of the Assyrians, didn't we? Their gods can't avenge him. See, this whole destruction of the Assyrians is avenging Israel for the Assyrians' plundering of Israel. Israel's God is stepping up, and he's coming to their defense. Their gods won't do that. 
They're wood and stone. They can't do that. Tonight we're going to look at Nahum's reasoning for the destruction of Nineveh. Why is God doing what he's doing? God's decision is a righteous one. and The prophet's going to make a case for that tonight. Verse 8 is where we start off tonight. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. So the prophet begins with the word but, right? It's a connecting verse. So it connects verse 7 and verse 8. Let's include verse 7 to get the picture of what he's saying here. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him, but... With an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. God is not one-sided. God is complex, isn't he? Too many Christians lean to one side or the other. He's either a sugar and gumdrops God, or all wrath and judgment God. That's not who he is. He's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. But with an overrunning flood, he'll chase down his enemies. Darkness will pursue them. He will make an utter end of his enemies. As much as he loves those who call on his name, he detests those who abuse his name, who abhor his name. He's so complex. Yes, he's love, and he's grace, and he's mercy, but he's justice, and he's wrath, and he's equity. All these things wrapped into one divine person. And so Nahum's making a contrast. The Lord is good. You're not. You're his enemy. You've plundered his people. You've raised your fist against him. And he's going to make an utter end of your people. The prophet Nahum gives us the true God. He's good, therefore he must be angry with sin. And that's the truth of it. When someone questions, how can a good God send people to hell? By that very virtue is why they're going to hell. He's good. He's good, so he must punish evil. To be good, one must hate evil. You understand that? Holiness is not neutral. Holiness is not a preference. If you and I are to be holy, it doesn't just mean we don't practice sin. We have to actively hate sin. You understand that? It ought to bother us. I mean, when Paul went to, to Greece, to Athens, I think I mentioned this a while back, he was just waiting for his friends to meet him there. And he watches all the idolatry and he can't contain himself. And he stands up and he preaches against their idols. He was so stirred by the, the wickedness he saw. Are you and I stirred by the wickedness we see? I think we're not. I think too often we've gotten so immune to it, we just see it and shake our head and move on. It should bother us. We should hate. So holiness, church, is not just an absence of evil. It's a hatred of evil. See, too many churches are, are making common ground with the unbelievers because they believe, oh, we, we shouldn't hate what they're doing. We just, uh, we don't do that ourselves. That's not how we roll here. 
No, 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 no. If we're going to be like God, we have to hate what God hates and love what God loves. There's no common ground with the enemy in this world. It should stir us up. To be just, God must punish evil. He cannot be, cannot be a just judge and let evil go unpunished. When you frame it that way, when you're talking to somebody maybe out on the streets or a friend, and they say, oh, hell is so unjust. Hell is so unfair. If God is love, how can he do that? You have to ask them. Would you accept a judge as righteous who let evil go unpunished? Well, hell is just so extreme. It's so uh, an eternity in, in torment for a lifetime of sin. It's not the lifetime of sin that creates the need for eternity of torment. It's the person sinned against that creates the need for eternal torment. He's an eternally holy God. He's an immensely holy God. And you have violated his character and nature by your sin. Infinite sins deserve infinite punishment. That's what hell is. Listen, God was just to banish man from the garden, wasn't he? Can you imagine if God had let Adam and Eve partake of the tree of life in their sinful condition? They would have lived eternally as fallen sinners. He couldn't allow it to happen. He wasn't being unkind to banish them from the garden. He was being merciful to them. Listen, God's not unkind to banish unbelievers from his kingdom. First of all, he's being merciful to them. They wouldn't like it there. Secondly, God cannot live with sin. If hell didn't exist, God would have to live with sin. He won't do that. God is a good God. I love how verse 7 starts off with the Lord is good. He knows those who trust in him. John 10, 26 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's a beauty in those words, isn't there? Christ knows us. We live in a day and age where we're afraid of being unknown, don't we? Afraid of being forgotten. That's what all the YouTube and TikTok nonsense is. Just people trying to make a name, trying to get famous. We're afraid of being forgotten. But Christ knows those who are his. They know those who are his. I mean, he knows those who are his. He knows your name. When you didn't know him, he knew you. When you didn't pursue him, he pursued you and me. You and I, in our sinful condition, received grace upon grace upon grace, and we didn't know it. I had a pastor once who was in the war. I don't know what war he was in. Probably World War II. He was in the 70s and the 90s, so probably World War II. He talks about a grenade going off or something near his head. And then something, right before it went off, something from somewhere else landed and kind of blocked him from the blast. And he said, if that hadn't happened right then, I would have died. He was unsaved at the time. He got saved many years later. You realize that when he didn't know Christ at all, 
while he was sinning against Christ, there he was in the jungle receiving grace and mercy from Christ. You know why? Because Christ knew his name. He knew his child, though he was not yet knowingly a child. You understand that when it comes to our salvation, we're God's children already from the foundation of the world. Getting saved is just the point in time where God makes that official, right? Uh, I think Paul used the term, and maybe in Galatians, that when, I forget, I don't want to word it wrong, but I don't know where it's at. Uh, when he chose to reveal his son in me, Paul says. You understand what Paul's saying there? God's mark was on him already. He simply revealed that in Paul at that moment in time. He knows our name. He has it written down. I think Revelation talks about those who were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You realize when Nahum prophesied this, my line of family was not even in existence yet. And yet at this moment, Christ knows my name. Though I have not come yet, he knows my name. There's a beauty in that. He is safety to those who trust in him. Turn to Proverbs 18, verse 10. Not only is he good in that he knows his people, but he protects his people. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. He's a strong tower. That's picturing a wartime, right? You build a place to retreat to, a safe high place, the high ground. A strong tower to defend against the enemies. That's what Christ is to us. He's a strong tower. You realize when you got saved, your sin was your slave master. It controlled you. You did what your nature told you to do. So did I. And then what we do, we ran to Christ. A strong tower. Free from the control of sin. You know that sin no longer controls you if you're a believer, right? A lot of Christians don't know this. We need to tell them that. Stop living in sin. It doesn't control you. It only has the power you give it in your life. Run to Christ. He's the strong tower. He's the protection. He's the safety for his people. When the world gets harsh and persecution comes, run to Christ. What did David do when Saul was trying to kill him? Read the Psalms. He flooded his bed with tears and he cried out to God. Same thing when he ran for Absalom. David ran a lot. Absalom tried to kill him. He did the same thing. He did the same thing. What did Paul do? We're reading in Philippians. He's in prison. Doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And he's investing his time praying for this church. Writing to this church. Seeking the good of this church. Somebody who runs to Christ. Go to Deuteronomy 33.27. Deuteronomy 33.27. We're looking at the goodness of God before we get into the, the judgment of God. Deuteronomy 
I should ask Earl to sing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms tonight. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. The everlasting arms. I love the picture of that. If you ever listen to Elizabeth Elliot's podcast, she quotes it all the time. Underneath are the everlasting arms, arms of comfort, arms of prote- protection. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. He's a good God who knows his people, who protects his people. Go to Psalm 91.1. Psalm 91.1. It's a famous psalm, one that Satan misquoted at Jesus' temptation. Psalm 91, and look at verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. What a great picture. He that dwelleth in the secret place. There's a secret place of the Most High where the people of God can run to. Do you run there? When life is pressing you down, when depression or hurt sinks in, where do you run? There's a secret place that we can run to for protection. I love the picture of the chicken covering her baby chicks for protection he shall cover thee with his feathers under his wings shalt thou trust those who are in Christ are protected by Christ their safety as I mentioned on Sunday from the wrath of God from the guilt of our sin and from the evildoer those who refuse his protection are outside of Christ this imagery of the chicken covering with his feathers reminds me of Matthew 23, 37, I'll read it to you. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The leaders of Israel refused the protection of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ. What's the promise of Psalm 91? The secret place of the Most High. Those who seek shelter there, they're under his wings, under his protection. Jesus said, I wanted to gather your children together, but you would not. Therefore, what? Your house is left to you desolate. The armies of Rome are coming, and they're going to lay bare to the city, to the temple, to everything. Because you would not take the shelter I have offered. God is good. God is protection. God knows his people. But as he tells in Nahum, with, with, a, with a flood, darkness will pursue his enemies. Those who refuse his protection, those who refuse his grace, those who refuse his love, will face his wrath one day. God's call to Nineveh to repent was a call to find safety in a God who is good, who knows his people, who see refuge in him. And they turned from that, didn't they? Oh, they repented for Jonah, but it was temporary. They didn't want to find their shelter in the Most High. Instead, they chose to return to their idols of stone and wood and to return to their sinful ways. 
You cannot live under God's shelter and live in sin. You can't. The call to find refuge in Christ is a call to abandon our sins. Plain and simple. You can't bring them with you. Sin is a violation of God's nature. Go back to Nahum chapter 1. So we see the contrast of the goodness of God to those who trust in him. But there's another side to consider. He'll pursue his enemies and make an utter end of them, which we find in verse number 8. Like a raging river, they would be overrun. He would make an utter end of them. This means completely destroy, by the way. Completely. Listen, remember the, the, the I just mentioned a minute ago, the, the, the picture of the chicken covering the, the hens, covering her chicks, right? And then he goes to Jerusalem and they refuse him. What did Jesus say about Jerusalem? What happened? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be. That is utter destruction. Not even two stones together left. Not one. Not one. Total destruction. So he's pronouncing here on, on Nineveh. Total destruction. Keep in mind, the destruction of Nineveh was so complete and so devastating, the, the city was not discovered again until the 19th century. Nahum said darkness would pursue God's enemies. Since God is light, 1 John 1, 5, then the presence of God would bring light. These are prophesied to be cast out of God's presence. I understand that God is everywhere. You know, I've heard people describe hell as, you know, being separated from God forever. You're never separated from God, right? God's everywhere. Uh, in fact, we see a very scary picture in Revelation of those who go to hell as they're tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. He beholds the torment of his enemies. God's punishment is not separation from God's presence, but from God's goodness and light and grace. You understand that sinners today still have a measure of God's grace in their life. They're not sinning as bad as they could sin, right? There's some sense of morality to them. There's some sense of, I won't do that. Hell is a giving over of sinners completely to their sin. Hell is a place where there is no governor on sin. They are given wholly over to whatever the depraved nature wants, only it will never be satisfied. It's a separation from the fellowship and the delight of God. Verse 9. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end of utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. God is asking the Assyrians, what do you think of the Lord? Another way to frame it is, what do you think against the Lord? Do they think they can boast against God and ravage his people he's not going to answer? Basically, he's saying, what, what did you think I was going to do? Nothing? Let me remind you of their boasting. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. Briefly, Isaiah chapter 10. Verse 
This is where the prophet prophesies that God is going to use Assyria to punish his people. Isaiah 10, 12 through 15. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, by the, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasuries. And I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathered the eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth it therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? King of Assyria was simply an axe in the hand of God. A tool that God used to bring judgment on Israel. But he boasted himself, look what I've done and nobody could stop me. They couldn't move a feather. They couldn't lay a hand against me. I think I mentioned on Sunday night, it's like Nebuchadnezzar and he went out to eat grass, right? What did he say? Look at this great Babylon that I have built. Look what my hands are. Who's better than me, right? That's what the king of Assyria did. He boasted himself against God. None can stop me. Who can lay his hand against me? Come on. Who can stop me? And finally, God stands up for his people and says, I can. Are you going to boast yourself? Does the axe boast itself against the one who holds it? You're merely a tool in my hand. Who are you to speak back to me? Go back to our text, verse 9. Listen, be careful speaking against the Lord. We're having a proud heart against the Lord. Be careful taking too much pride, Christian, in what you accomplish in your Christian life. Or me. We are simply tools in the hands of God. That's it. Nothing more. We're not great. We're not special. We couldn't do it without him. We are simply tools. How many Christians lift up themselves up in their heart as if they've done something by themselves? I've heard pastors of large churches talk about the, the ministry they built. The great work that they did. Do you realize that without God, you could do nothing? Or if God decided to move his hand against you, you couldn't stop him? We are boasting ourselves against God. The potter doesn't answer back, to, or the clay doesn't answer back to the potter. Can you imagine a potter making a beautiful pot, and the pot going, what a great pot I am. Look what I have made myself. No. We're all prone to the boasting of the king of Assyria, aren't we? Thinking that we've done something great. We've accomplished something. We've accomplished nothing, Christian. But what God has allowed us to do. And he's done it for his own glory, not for ours. Remember that. Don't boast yourself before God. He'll make an utter end. He's speaking here of the strength of the Assyrians. Affliction shall not rise up a second time, he says. The ravaging of Israel under Sennacherib would not happen a second time. They came through and they took captive. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel goes into captivity. 
Doesn't come back out. God leaves Judah as the lone seed. And Assyria, their mind was to come back and destroy Judah as well. But God's promise is, no, 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 I use them to punish the northern kingdom. They'll not come back a second time. I will destroy them. Verse 10, for while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Either way, God, I think God has a real sarcastic attitude towards his enemies. I mean, he's telling just how easy it's going to be to overthrow this mighty nation. The reference to being folded together like thorns is a reference to their being intertwined like thorns. You ever seen a, a real crown of thorns from Israel? I mean, big. I mean, it's not like rosebush thorns. I mean, it's, it's thick. You couldn't just break it with your hand. I had a pastor once. That's in my book. I had a pastor once. This isn't a bad story, though. I, man, it's really like, what, what, I don't know what the subtitle should be, The Horrors of Bad Church. I don't know, anyways. I had this pastor once, and someone brought him a, a crown of thorns from Israel. It was, it was really thick. I mean, the thorns were like that big. That's what he's talking about. They're impenetrable. They're strong. While they be folded together as thorns, while they're strong, I'm going to crush them. God's not even like weakening the nation first. He doesn't need to weaken the nation. He's going to destroy them in their strength. He's going to show the nations around them that he is God alone. It's like when Elijah, right? Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. It wasn't just like, all right, your sacrifice versus this sacrifice. It was like, pour lots of water on it. Let's make it impossible to light on fire. And then I'm going to come down. I'm going to consume it like that. And he consumed the sacrifice and the water and everything. He says, I'm not weakening the nation. I'm going to destroy them in their strength. Because that's what they're boasting about is their strength. Who can touch us? Who can stop us? Who can lay their hand against us? And God says, I'm going to. I'm going to. They thought themselves unstoppable, but they're not. Isaiah 10, 17 says, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Their strength will be brought down in one day. It's not even work for God. He's going to destroy them. While they be as drunkards, there's a story that Nineveh repelled their attackers three times. And afterwards, they threw a party. And they got drunk. And that's where the invaders came in and destroyed the city. Reminds you of somebody? Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. Got drunk at the party. And it's funny, I was reading a archaeology thing about that. In the Bible, it records that they were having that big party and they brought in the vessels from the temple in to party with. And they got drunk and the writing of the man's hand came. What did it say? You've been found, or weighed the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has come to an end. And that night, that night, Babylon fell. If you study the secular account of the fall of Babylon, it basically says that the enemies of Babylon, while they were drunk, the men of the city, they dug under the wall and invaded the city. 
They didn't put up a battle. There was no fight. Just as Daniel prophesied, or, or tells us in the book of Daniel. And so it was with Nineveh. He took their stout heart, their proud look, and he used it against them. They got so proud. We've won. We've three times repelled our enemy. Let's, let's throw a party. Let's celebrate. And God says, oh yeah, drink up. Your destruction's coming in one night. It's their own stout heart that was their undoing. Church pride kills. Don't be prideful. We've got to fight that. In the pride of his heart, man will be cast into hell. Don't be proud. The prophet says that they shall be devoured as the stubble fully dry. Have you ever seen dry grass burn? I'm from Bakersfield. That's all that happens there is homeless people setting grass on fire. All over town, all you see is yellow grass all year long. It's ugly. You guys know the doctrine of purgatory actually started in Bakersfield, right? Anyways, somebody fell asleep, woke up there one night, and realized I must be in a place between heaven and hell. Closer to the hell side of it, but anyways. All over town, yellow grass. They have a terrible drug and homeless problem there. And once a week, some field is caught on fire. Turns into this big, it just goes up and spreads like crazy because that's what happens on dried grass. It just, it just spreads. God says, I'm going to devour you as fully dry stubble. What he's saying there, you're nothing to me. I'll destroy you in a moment. Be careful, America. I, I, listen, I, I love, I'm patriotic. I love America. I, I do. I don't hate America. You think for my preaching I do, but I don't. But I was raised to take so much pride in America. Our military. Our constitution. I mean, we just win all these wars that we fight. The ones we don't win, we don't talk about anymore. Don't take pride in the American military. God can silence us in a night. In a single night could bring us down. That's not hating America. That's loving America to say we need to repent. We need to repent. We have one political party, the Republicans who use God as a what's the word I'm looking for? Election pawn. Bring them out when they want to, put them away when they don't. Man, back in the 90s, there's the string of these politicians, Republicans, all of them, who were like leaders in the family values voting, who got caught with drugs or male or female prostitutes. I thought, you're just using God to get elected. Then you have the other party that actually booed God when they had their convention a couple of years ago. Was it 2000 and I want to say 12? They put God in, the, in, in their party's platform and it got booed by the crowd. God's not mocked. We should be very, very fearful in this country of the judgment and wrath of God righteously against our sin. He says, you think you're so strong, Assyria. I'm going to burn you up like dry grass. And it's going to spread and you'll be destroyed. I'm going to do it in your strength. I'm going to use your own haughtiness against you. 
And as you party and you rejoice in your strength, you'll be destroyed. God is good and righteous. But he's to be feared by the evildoer. He's to be feared by the evildoer. Verse 11, there's one, that, there's one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. The one coming out of them, imagining evil against the Lord, is probably referenced to Sennacherib. The phrase wicked counselor there is counselor of Belial, meaning a worthless counselor. Worthless counselor. This references not only their worthless leader, Sennacherib, but also their worthless plans against the people of God. They would be overthrown in their attempt to destroy God's people. By the way, no one will ever destroy God's people. Ever. He protects his own. He's a strong tower. He's that chick that's covering, or chicken, who's covering the chicks with her wings. No one will ever devour the church or destroy the church. You understand that, right, Christian? We're safe. Don't be scared. Don't be scared when persecution comes. Don't be scared when they hate us. When they outlaw us, they cannot destroy us. He's our strong tower. He's the everlasting arms upholding us. He's good to those who trust in him. Verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. When he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. This is the decree of the Lord concerning Nineveh. Though they be quiet and many in number. This refers to their dwelling safely and securely. Then he says, yet thus shall they be thrust down. In other words, just as they are, they'll be destroyed. Does it remind you of some other wicked people in the Bible? When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. When they're dwelling safe and secure. He says, when they're many and they're quiet and they're safe. Do you think they felt quiet and safe the night they got drunk and got destroyed? Yeah. They felt comfortable, didn't they? Comfortable enough to get drunk. Comfortable enough to lift their stout hearts against the Lord. He says, in that moment, I'm going to destroy them. Their strength in numbers won't save them. He says, they're many. They're many. I think about that... Uh, He's in the book of Joshua. I could be wrong. It could be Judges. It's in the Bible, I promise you. Where the eyes of the servant are opened up. He's afraid of the numbers of the enemies. And the prophet says, look at that army that God has. There's more with us than are with them. He's telling Israel, they're great in number. But I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. He doesn't need an army. Right? He can do it himself. Their destruction has been decreed and no one can stop it. Then the prophet, well, the Lord through the prophet, turns his attention to Israel with words of comfort. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. They had paid for their sins and now they would have peace. Their enemies would be laid waste. Israel paid for their sins. They broke covenant with God. God punished them. There's a great New Testament truth in that. We never face punishment for our sins. 
ever. Think about that. Christ took all of our punishment for our sins. When he told Israel, I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. (laughs) In our case, he points to Christ and says, though I have afflicted him, I'll afflict you no more. Our sins are paid for. There's now peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love these, the way this, you can apply this prophetically to the church today. Verse 13, For now I will break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. Israel was under the yoke or bondage of the Assyrians. Not that they were slaves per se, but they were a vassal state of Assyria. They paid tribute to them. They were under their control. They lived in constant fear of the Assyrians. No more would this go on, God is saying. God would break the hold Assyria had over his people. Like prisoners or slaves bound with a chain, God would burst it open and set them free. This is a precious promise for us today, isn't it? That's what God has done for us through Christ. He has broken the chains of our sin, and he has set us free. No more do we fear sin. No more do we fear death. No more do we fear God's judgment or punishment. We are set free from fear in Christ. We can also apply this to our enemies today. Don't be afraid of enemies of the gospel today. Fear for them, but don't fear them. God will avenge his people. This is not escaping his notice what goes on in our world today. When they persecute the church, when they live with their heart against God, they get stout against God, they, 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 they parade around their sin. By the way, we're coming up in June. There's going to be a lot of parades about sin this month. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. They'll face judgment one day. And that swiftly. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 real quick. God still protects his people. And he will still make an end of our enemies. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. Isn't that funny? You're under persecution. You're under intense persecution. He's like, just rest. Rest in what? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What a powerful word. Christ is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the end of those who trouble you. Persecution is coming, church, to America. But don't worry. Rest easy. God will avenge his people. He's a God of justice and equity. 
One day Christ will punish those who punish his people. You cannot lay a hand against God's inheritance and get away with it. Not in ancient Israel, not today. God will vindicate us in the destruction of the wicked. So suffer well and rest. Go back to our text. Two more verses, we'll finish up. God will avenge his enemies. Verse 14, And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. The first part of this verse shows that he is speaking again to the Assyrians. He tells them that no more of their name will be sown. That's what they were doing. They're going around conquering the world, taking over these nations, spreading their people out, trying to make their name great. No more will they conquer and spread. Out of the house of thy gods will they cut off the graven image and the molten image. A graven image is made out of wood or stone. A molten image is cast in metal. They were known to destroy the gods of the nations they conquered. And God says, I'm going to destroy your gods out of your house. I'm going to destroy them completely. Basically, what's being, what you've done to others, I'm going to repay back to you again. We see this image throughout Scripture of God repaying the wicked according as they have done to others. It's definitely aligned with the principle of sowing and reaping. He will make their grave or basically destroy them. They will cease to exist. I like the phrase at the end where he says, For thou art vile. The language here is the same as we see in Daniel 5. It means weigh in the balances and found wanting. You're sinners. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. The word behold is a word of declaration. Then he references the mountains. Israel, or Isaiah uses the reference to the coming Messiah. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Paul uses it in reference to the gospel in Romans 10, 15. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The reference from Nahum is how Israel receives news of the downfall of Assyria. The good tidings were of the downfall of the nation that had troubled them, and the tidings of peace reflect the peace that would come to Israel. This was a cause for celebration, but there's also a serious business to attend to. Look back at verse 15. He says, O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He's utterly cut off. They were punished for their disobedience. This is why God brought the Assyrians against them. Now he has paid back the Assyrians. What is Israel to do? What is Judah to do? Obey. They're to obey. Keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows. Basically, do what you're supposed to do. The wicked, meaning the, the Assyrians, would never pass through them again. They were utterly cast off. This reminds us of the gospel. In light of God defeating our enemy, in light of the good news of the Messiah, what are we to do? We're to obey. 
We're to walk in righteousness and holiness. The fruit, the fruit of having received the glad tidings of good things is that we obey the law of God, that we walk in obedience to Christ's commands. Let me wrap it up. Sin brings the righteous judgment of God. Remember that. I hate when Christians act as though, well, I can sin all I want because I'm saved. And I'm... That's your attitude. You're not saved. <laughs> you understand that? Sin always brings. I'm not saying you, you have to be perfect. I'm saying those who live in sin have earned the righteous judgment of God. And a Christian should not be living in sin. But remember, we all know people who are living in sin. We're to warn them to flee from the wrath to come because the wrath of God is coming against sin. There is no safe place to hide from the wrath of God except in Christ. That's it. That's it. The secret place of the Most High is under the shadow of the Almighty. That's the only place for us to seek refuge is in Christ. Don't seek refuge in your church or your baptism or your service to God. You won't find refuge there. Baptized people go to hell. Church members go to hell. Faithful religious duty people. Is that a good phrase? Go to hell. Not proper English, but it works for the moment. You know who doesn't go to hell? Those who find their refuge in Christ. He said, those who come to me, I'll never cast away. Never cast away. Those who boast against God will be brought low and humbled. Humble yourselves now. America needs to humble herself now. Don't boast against God. God will pay back those who persecute and trouble his people. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He told the Thessalonians, those who trouble you will be troubled by God. Rejoice that the Messiah has brought victory over sin. Publish it everywhere. That's the gospel. We're going to do it on Friday at Redondo Beach. We're going to do it on Saturday and Torrance, and Torrance, and Hermosa Beach. We're going to publish the news that Christ has conquered sin, and that he is the refuge for the sinner. In light of his victory over sin, church, we're to walk in obedience. Jesus said, John 14, 15, I'll leave you with this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love Christ tonight? If you do, the only way to demonstrate that is by keeping his commandments, by obeying him. He warned Israel, I've, I've punished your enemies. I've freed you from your enemies. Keep your solemn feasts. Perform your vows. He can say to us, First Baptist Church, I've, I've freed you from your sin. I've defeated your enemy for you. Sin and death. Now walk in obedience. Demonstrate that you love me by obeying my commands. God is good. God is good, but God is fierce. He's to be feared. He's jealous. He's angry with the wicked. He hates sin. He's just. He'll punish sin. In light of that, seek refuge in 
Christ and Christ alone. He's good. He knows our name. He's a strong tower. He's everlasting arms. He's a shelter in the Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much this evening for this picture of your wrath and your grace. Though you punished Israel, you would not destroy her. You know your people. You love your people. You knew my name long before I knew yours. Before I took my first breath, you knew my name. From eternity past, you knew my name. Before Adam ever sinned, you knew my name. You're a strong tower, your everlasting arms, your shelter. Lord, may I, may I ever abide under your feathers, under your wings. Lord, turn our nation to righteousness. We have example after example in the Bible. Egypt, Sodom, Assyria, these great world powers, Babylon, Rome, these great world powers who you humbled. Oh God, humble America. Bring us to repentance, Lord. May we not lift our hearts against you, Lord. For the people gathered here, Lord, may we not find boasting in ourselves, but in Christ alone. May everyone here be seeking the shelter that's found in Christ only. And may we publish those tidings that there is hope in this troubled world. There's protection from sin and from the wrath of God. Though you're angry, you're kind to those who seek refuge in you. You're, you're good. You're a strong tower. Oh God, may we obey you. May we love you more. And may we ever find ourselves under your wings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.